So what I'd love you to do is grab a Bible somewhere near you. If you've one with you or one on your device or one simply under the seat in front of you. And open it up at Matthew chapter 4. We're in this series where we're working through Matthew's gospel. And we're asking you to read a whole chapter of the Bible during the week in preparation for the incoming Sunday. And in the mornings, we're doing it chapter by chapter by chapter. Now, as you're doing that, I just want to get a couple of things ready. Salt and vinegar crisps. There we go. You guys know me and my coffee, don't you? Just, you know, in case. We'll let that brew for a while and the aroma fill the church. And then finally, I don't know if any chocolate fans know. And let's actually maybe I'm not going to lie, that's my weakness there. And if you can, in the midst of all of that, listen for the word of God. It's from Matthew chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I can smell the coffee. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so you will not strike a foot against the stone. It's actually hard to read with my mouth full of saliva as I think about the chocolate. Ah, excuse me. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus answered him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Wonder was that any harder to concentrate on this morning than usual? The smell of chocolate, the thought of the salt and vinegar crisps. My wife's probably going mad down there. That's her weakness. Um, the images on the screen of, of, of beautiful people and of exotic holidays and of class-looking cars. 
hard to concentrate on what God's saying, on his word. You see, every day we're bombarded with temptation, sometimes from the culture around us, sometimes from our own desires, sometimes from demonic forces. What for 2,000 years the church has called the world, the flesh, and the devil, all seeking to distract us, all seeking to dilute, and all seeking, seeking to distort the truth that we find in God's word. And to have, have us sell out and believe in a, a smaller gospel or a different kind of truth. And I want to say really clearly this morning, we're going to be thinking about temptation. But I want to say really clearly, in this area, I am not an expert. I'm a pilgrim. Walking the same path you're walking, being tempted by the same things you're tempted by, sometimes succumbing to them, sometimes overcoming them. But this morning, don't do it any morning, but this morning especially, do not dream of putting me on a pedestal here. Because my sin's no different than yours. So let's pray for a moment and then we're going to step into this text. Father, you are holy and you are perfect in every single way. And your son, Jesus Christ, when he walked on this earth, was holy and perfect in every single way. He never once gave in to temptation. And even before we start to, to press into your word, Lord, our consciences are firing on all cylinders because we're aware of our own imperfections and our own brokenness and the times that we have said yes when we should have said no and the times when we have said nothing when we should have said something. Forgive us, Lord. And remind us that we are a forgiven people. And by your Spirit, speak to us this morning through your word and strengthen us spiritually for the battle that rages in us and around us every moment of every day is real. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let me give you the context for this text because to read things out of context isn't helpful. In actual fact, what you see in this passage is the devil taking verses from the Bible out of context and using them to twist God's truth. And that's really dangerous. And, and sometimes we end up doing that ourselves and that's really dangerous. So the context is really important. Jesus is at the very beginning of his ministry. He has just been baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, you'll remember Nicola last week was talking about John the Baptist and his ministry. Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And we get this amazing moment. One of my favorite moments in all of Scripture where Jesus comes out of the water. And you just imagine the water kind of running off him, running off him, running off him. He comes out of the water. We're told the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove in a physical form, and rests on him. And in that moment, a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
In that moment, we get the most beautiful glimpse of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit present at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the other thing that's, that's really important about this is Jesus is about to start a three-year ministry program that's going to challenge him in every single way. And he's about to step into the wilderness to be tempted by, God, or tempted by the devil in, in ways that would break any one of us. And he hears this, this voice of his father saying, you are my son. This is my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I want to reaffirm what I said two weeks ago, that as a church, one of the most important things we're going to do this year is learn to hear the father's voice more clearly. It was so important for Jesus, it's even more important for us. So Jesus withdraws into the wilderness. After his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to fast. Fasting is not a thing that's very popular in our culture, let's be honest. Um, but it's something we're going to be thinking more about as a church. In fact, we're, we're going to be doing some teaching on it in a few weeks' time. So I'd love you to come along to that. Fasting, in a nutshell, is giving up something that you, you take for granted on a regular basis. Giving it up and stepping away from it. Normally it's food, but it can be anything really. And the purpose of fasting is to I guess, heighten your spiritual senses. What fasting does, it, it, um, it increases your desire for God and your experience of God. And we'll explore what that means in a few weeks' time. But if you want to kickstart your new year and, and just to walk deeper with God, maybe consider fasting as an option. The other thing I want to say about the context here is this is a really cool story. And the reason I say that is because this is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is right. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus is alone and we see what happens by his own memory of the experience of it. None of the disciples were with him. Nobody else is with him. He experiences this over 40 days. He comes out of the wilderness and then he tells his disciples what happened. So what you have here is Jesus' own words, his own memories of this experience that he had in the wilderness recounted to the disciples. It's really cool. It's really cool. So he's in the wilderness. He's fasting. Um, whether that means no food for 40 days or just reducing the amount of food he had um, and limiting certain things that he would take for granted for 40 days. And in the midst of it, we're told the tempter comes to him. Now, depending on how you read this, it's okay either way. Some of you will picture this, that Jesus is there and a physical manifestation of the devil walks up to him. A physical form, a physical being. And that's okay. For years, I think that's how I pictured it. And I blame my youth fellowship leaders who made me act out a drama with Jesus and the devil like a Rocky Four film, you know, kind of with soundtrack as well. And, and, and that's okay, you can picture it that way because we're not told. The other way to picture it is it's a psychological experience that the devil invades his thought patterns and overwhelms his thoughts with temptation. That's probably how I understand it, but I can't say for sure. 
And the reason I say that is because that's how temptation often comes to me. My thoughts get pulled in a direction that, that almost overwhelms me, even though I know they're not right. But we're told the devil comes to him. And I want to say really clearly, because maybe we don't say this often enough, the devil is real. We're told that in the Bible. Sometimes he's called the tempter. Sometimes he's called the Satan. Sometimes he's called the, the, the devil or the father of lies or the prince of the air. He has different names, but he is real. Old and New Testament, the Bible's consistent on that. The Bible tells us that alongside the physical world that we live in, there's a supernatural reality that exists alongside that. That there are demonic forces in our world that are warring to seek to gain influence over the culture that we live in and over the lives of individual people. Trying to distort truth and lead us out of what we see in Scripture as God's plan and desire for our lives and for the world. That's why Paul says that our struggle is not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of dark forces in the heavenly realms. That's what he's saying there. But Jesus is in the wilderness, and the devil comes and... There's this battle of temptation of wills. And as I read this, what I see um, is that this is a very real event in history. This happened to Jesus. But the temptations that he experienced weren't unique for that moment. I think these were temptations that Jesus experienced all through his life. And what's more than that, these temptations that Jesus experienced in these moments are exactly the same temptations that you and I experience every day of life. Let me explain what I mean by that. So if you've got your Bibles out, keep, I'm just working through this sequentially, almost verse by verse. You can keep an eye on it and take notes. 40 days without a normal diet, maybe no food or limited food, how's he going to be feeling physically? If any of you skip breakfast, you're probably checking your watch now going, how long is he going to preach before I get home for lunch? You know, if we miss one meal, we think we're in agony, we're dying, don't we? 40 days limiting his food intake so he can fast and be totally present with God. And Satan comes and invades that weakness and says, why don't you use the Holy Spirit's power to Turn these stones into bread. You don't need to be this hungry. If you're really the son of God, you could do this. And the temptation can't be to do a miracle to make stones into bread because later on in Matthew's gospel, on two separate occasions, Jesus performs a miracle that multiplies bread to feed 5,000 people and feed 4,000 people. So I'm not convinced the temptation is as simple as do a miracle to make stones into bread. I think the temptation is much deeper than that. I, I think what we see here is the temptation is to live according to your desires. 
to live according to your human desires, to say the physical desires that you feel are are the most important thing in your life and you should be true to yourself and live according to every urge, every whim that you feel. And I think that's what the temptation was. You're hungry, use your power to make bread, to eat, give in to your physical desires. And I reckon today this is the most common temptation that we experience as Christians, as, as people of God, to live according to our desires. And I think it's probably the most common temptation that people, even who aren't Christians, experience every day. And it's happened so much that we don't even recognize it as a temptation. We recognize it just as part of our story, part of who we are. You feel something, you act upon it. Tell me, how's your January diet going? How long did you last before you give in to that desire for a Mars bar at 10 o'clock at night? How long was the Chinese vacant of your presence after your good intention in January? Or did you give in to that physical craving, that physical desire? We're told today that um, one in four of our children and six out of ten adults are obese. And not exclusively, but a significant reason for that is that we live according to our desires. We struggle with self-control and willpower. The, the, porno, the pornography industry is fueled by the idea that it's okay to live according to your desires. Instant gratification without any commitment. Just have your physical needs met like that. 30% of internet downloads are for pornography these days. And a, a statistic I read this week was that the porn industry, the online porn industry, has more activity than, more traffic than Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter put together in any given week. That gives you a sense of the size and scale of this problem because we have a culture of people today who think it's okay to live according to every desire that you feel. Consumerism is our default position. How many TVs do you have in your house? How many pairs of shoes do you have in your wardrobe? How many tools do you have in your garage? In case you think that's a sexist comment, I probably have more shoes than I have tools. The staff team keep teasing me about this. We don't shop according to need, we shop according to desire. Something shifted in our psyche. The whole discussion around the LGBT community, a big part of it is fueled by a philosophy that you are, your identity is tied up in your desires. You are who you desire. Does that make sense? The urges that you feel define who you are. Is that right? Is that what we're saying? Is that right? I'm not sure it is. What I see when I look at my own desires is that they're not perfect. I can't trust my own heart to know what's always right for me. And when Satan comes to tempt Jesus, what he's saying is, live according to your desires. Do what's right for you. 
And Jesus says to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's he saying? I'm not going to live according to my physical desires, but I'm going to live according to God's desires for me. Do you see that? And that's what we're called to do. We're called to immerse ourselves in Scripture and spend time alone with God and to fast and pray and memorize the Bible so we can get to know this God who is good, who is perfect, who loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for you. Why? Because his desires for you are better, are more fulfilling, are more life-giving than any desire you have for yourself. I promise you that. I promise you that. Second temptation that we see. Satan brings Jesus to the the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says to him, throw yourself off. God will not let you, your foot hit the ground. If you're really the Messiah, if you're really God's chosen anointed one, he'll send angels to catch you and you'll be safe. Throw yourself off. And to understand this, you have to understand that there was this Jewish tradition that came from the Jewish Midrash, which was uh, part of the way of interpreting the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, for our day, for their day. And what they believed was that the Messiah would be revealed to the nations by throwing himself off, standing at the highest point of the temple and jumping off and surviving And that would be the way the crowds would go, oh, it's the Messiah, it's the promised one, it's the chosen one. And Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, you need all these people to love you. You need all these people to follow you. You need your validation from all of these people. You need your affirmation from the crowd. So you've got to do something impressive. And only when they love you, then, only then, will you be the Messiah that they want. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, who do I look for for validation? Who do you look for? For validation. Kara's my daughter. She'll do a cartwheel in the garden. And as soon as she does, you see her head turn. She looks to see if I saw her do it. Because she wants my validation. She wants me to affirm her. When you post something on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, how long do you wait before you check how many comments you've got, how many likes you've got? It's not enough that you've posted it. You need other people to know you've posted it so you can be validated because their opinion of you matters. Yeah? Who do you look for for validation? Who do you look for for affirmation? Whose voice is the most important voice in your life? We tell our kids, don't follow the crowd. Be your own person. Don't do things for the approval of others because that'll lead you to get in difficult situations and you'll end up living in shame. But as adults, are we any better? As you sit this morning, whose approval do you live for? Whose approval do I live for? And Satan says to Jesus, you need to do something impressive, to be validated, to be affirmed. And Jesus says, no, I don't need to test God. I know he loves me. 
I know he loves me. I don't need anybody else's. Are we willing to allow God's invitation and his affirmation to be enough? Mike Iaconelli said, live your life before an audience of one. Guys, as you make decisions every day, it is only God's opinion of you that matters, first and foremost. First and foremost. Finally, Satan brings Jesus to this high mountain. This is probably a vision that he had this high mountain where he could see every kingdom of the world. And he says to him, all of this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. All of this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. And it was Satan's to give. When Adam had given into temptation in, in, the, in the Garden of Eden... Satan had gained control and sin and death had entered all of the world. All of this was Satan's to give. And Satan says to Jesus, I know why you're here. I know why you've come. I can see the cross on the horizon. But here, there's an easier way. There's a way that doesn't involve rejection. There's a way that doesn't involve suffering. There's a way that doesn't involve pain. There's a way that doesn't involve crucifixion. There's a way that doesn't involve sacrifice. And yeah, okay, it's a smaller gospel and it's not going to lead to all of these people getting forgiven and getting eternal life, but it'll be easier for you if you just bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms. Are you willing to settle? There's a book we're reading, many of you are reading um, as a church, we recommended it over Christmas, Dirty Glory, by a guy called Pete Gregg, who's the pioneer of the 24-7 prayer movement. And in that book, Pete tells a story. He's about 10 years into this prayer movement. It started off with a vision that he had, and then he started a prayer meeting that ran... 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that now 20 years on is in over half the countries in the world. That's incredible, isn't it? But he tells a story in this book about maybe 10 or 12 years in, being physically and spiritually exhausted and burnt out. His wife had just been through some of the most horrendous, um, just sickness with epilepsy and surgeries and had almost died on on different occasions and they had almost no money and he found himself in this little town on the border between Kansas and Missouri in America and he was really wrestling with you know God what you know do you what do you want me to do Do you want me to keep pioneering? Do you want me to keep bringing you breakthrough and push this movement into more countries, into more places, into more churches? Or would it be okay if after having given so much, I could could just find a church and settle down and, and be a pastor and it'd be easier? And he found himself standing in this graveyard, in this little town, this little small Midwest America town, And he looked down at the ground and he saw these ruts, just these wide ruts in the ground. And what he found out was these were wagon tracks. When 300 years previously, um, 
America had been, I mean, not quite 300 years, America had been settled. And people from the East Coast had, had pioneered and moved out West in the hope of getting to the West Coast of America and, and finding gold and finding cattle and making their fortunes and building better lives for themselves. And this little town used to be called Blue Camp 20. Not even a proper name. And this was the last post of civilization before you stepped into the complete wilderness of Apache country and Comanche country. And thousands upon thousands of people of wagons and families had had traveled these ruts and had got to this point at Blue Camp 20 and had to make a decision. We've already given so much. This has cost us so much. Do we keep going? Or do we settle here? Do we keep going or do we settle here? And one by one, different people had given up and had settled. And they'd built businesses. And this little town that that became known as Little Santa Fe had grown up from nothing because people had lost their dream and lost their calling and stopped pushing and stopped pioneering. And in that moment, God said to him, you can settle, you can stop here, and I'll bless you and I'll use you. But if you're willing to keep going, if you're willing to keep praying, if you're willing to keep dreaming, if you're willing to keep taking my, my word and allowing it to be your guide, I'm going to do more and more and more through you. And he calls that a real transition moment for him. To settle or to keep trusting God and pushing on into the unknown. And Satan said to Jesus, are you willing to settle? Are you willing to embrace a smaller gospel that makes your life better but doesn't release blessing to the whole world? When we read our Bibles, when we pray, when we look at our lives and we look at where church is in Northern Ireland, this isn't an Orangefield comment, this is a a church in Northern Ireland comment. I can't help but wonder, has the church settled for something smaller than God intended for us? We measure success by the ABC of church life. Attendance, buildings, and cash tend to be our our, our markers for how well church is going, isn't it? When did Jesus ever talk about those things, about success in the Christian life? I'm not saying they're not important, but, but they're not markers of success. Have we settled for comfort over pursuing God's kingdom? Have we settled for security, personal security, rather than living lives of radical generosity? Have we settled for, for safety rather than faith that causes us to step out of the boat and take risks and try new things? Have we settled for personal fulfillment? rather than the dream that God plants in Scripture that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God? Is that what we're crying out for when we pray at night? There's only 30 people come to our prayer meeting. 
Are we hungry to see God's kingdom come in this place, in this time? To see the things that we see in Scripture happen in our day? To see lives transformed? As we commit to praying for one person every day for a whole year, I wonder, have we forgotten to do that already? Have we settled for personal convenience? And Jesus says, away from me, Satan. Stop putting those ideas in my head. Stop enticing me to a life of personal indulgence and comfort. I will worship the Lord my God and him only. You see, church, succumbing to temptation drives us into one of two places, either into shame or into entitlement. And I don't think the devil minds which of those he leaves us lingering in because they both end up doing the same thing. They blind us to our identity that we are loved and we are chosen and we are forgiven and we are adopted into God's family. We are sons and daughters of the King because Jesus Christ died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that we don't live in shame and we don't live in entitlement, but we are covered in grace. Or it blinds us to our destiny. That we are children of heaven, that we are called to be there one day. But in the meantime, as we walk on this earth, we are called to partner with God in releasing his love and his joy and his hope and his generosity and his grace into every corner of creation. Let me finish with this. The point of this morning's teaching isn't to make you or I feel guilty. And yet there's a danger that's where we could end up leaving off. To live according to our desires, to live for the affirmation of others, to live a more comfortable life ourselves rather than pursuing God and his kingdom with every breath in our body. Adam and Eve couldn't do it. Israel, as they walked through the wilderness, they couldn't do it. They they had the most profound encounters with God through fire and smoke and on mountains and the Ark of the Covenant, and yet they still built a golden calf. They couldn't do it. And most days you and I struggle and fall short as we give in to temptation and we compromise Only one person, only one person could do it, and it was Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He never gave in to temptation. And it's not simply that his life is a model for us. It's more than that. Because he was perfect, he he gave his life on the cross as the unblemished sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Every time you give in to temptation and you ask for forgiveness, He's paid the price for it. There's nothing in your life that needs to separate you from relationship with Jesus. He's already done it all. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I'm not perfect, but I believe that you are. I believe that you died for me for the forgiveness of my sins. 
And I believe this morning that you're inviting me to walk with you. Some of you have made that commitment and are already Christians. But maybe this morning as we come to the table, you just need to to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I want more faith. I want more of you. For others who, who have been holding back for years, that this hasn't made sense for, or worse, you're, you're blinded by your own mistakes and your own shame and your own brokenness. I want to tell you that this Jesus, he died for you. He loves you. He, he wants to take away your shame. He wants you to be in relationship and friendship with him today and to be in heaven with him forever. And all you have to do and say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me and make me new. Let's stand together as we pray. And as we prepare to come to this table, I simply want to create space for you to set down your shame and set down your entitlement. And in the next moment, I just invite you to bring your sorry, your confession, your repentance to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, but something this morning's making your heart burn, and you want to be forgiven. You want a new start. You want that assurance of forgiveness and that assurance of life in heaven forever. Pray with me now. Jesus, I believe in you. I don't know all the answers. I still have questions. I just know I want to be forgiven. I don't want to keep feeling like this. So I'm sorry And I turn to you, come into my life and forgive me and make me new.